I'd like to talk about uh, tonight one of, uh, well, they're all my favorite subjects, so strike that. But um, I don't ever talk about things I don't like to talk about. So, uh, tonight the theme is going to be the role that, for a lack of a better term, and there really isn't a really good term, but the role that the existential crisis plays in the spiritual path. Um, and I'm going to use, to start off this talk, uh, just because I like talking about them as well, to continue that theme of doing the things that I like, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the existentialists, because they were very similar to the Buddhists, and um, to us Buddhists, and they... Uh, uh, sometimes understanding uh, from a different perspective makes it easier to understand uh, Buddhist thought. So, um, very generally, but the existentialists believe that we we start off life very much uh, as any good attachment uh, psychologist will tell you. We're all seeking connection. Uh, security, survival, and if we'll do just about anything for it. And uh, in life, when we start out, if we don't get rewarded by our caretakers for our innate behaviors, the things that, the activities, behaviors, drives, impulses that we naturally do, um, if we don't get rewarded for those, we'll basically do anything to get approval and connection and security from others. And uh, very often we adopt what's known as inauthentic behaviors. Basically we'll uh, follow where other people tell us we will get love and approval. Uh, very often it keeps us constrained into gender expectations, expectations based on performance and uh, expectations based upon social conventions, uh, things like confidence and uh, 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 knowing, being a smart <coughs> pants. There's so many uh, things that the world rewards us for. Very often people are not rewarded though for any uh, behaviors that uh, are not understood by their caretakers. If their caretake, if our caretakers are uh, not creative and we have creative impulses, we will not be rewarded for those. And so we, um, to achieve survival and approval, we adopt sometimes performative behaviors. In other words we do things that we wouldn't naturally do to get other people to like us, simply put. And um, we go along with a group. We even begin to think the way uh, our culture tells us to think. And we, we begin to, in our minds, recite the, some of the dominant ideologies and ideas of the day. 
in an, e- in an effort to make ourselves fit in. Even if we like to think of ourselves as uh, Dharma punks, outsiders, we'll still try to fit in with some group. It could be the subculture, the outsiders. I'm one of the outsiders. I was a, I was a druggie in school, and now I'm a activist, punk, anarcho syndicalist rebel, <laughs> neo-communist. Uh, whatever. Uh, we, we still want to be. We want to be fit in, and we want to fit in. We want to be approved of, and very often we will find a group that seems the most likely to accept us, but then, even then, we have to do a lot of selling ourselves out, disavowing of innate behaviors, doing just about, saying just about anything to get love. And um, very often it can lead to roles in the world, jobs, behaviors, people can try to appear heteronormative just because people reward them for that. People can try to, you know, dress in the way that they believe people will reward them for, enact the personality traits, the assurances, the beliefs, the opinions. Oh yeah, I... I love this group and I hate that group. Uh, Just to get acceptance. And um, one of the most valuable moments in life can actually come about when we actually hit a wall, when those, those performances, when those schemas to get love and acceptance actually fall apart uh, and we hit what's known as an existential despair when we generally it comes about as a a moment of um, uh, coming face to face with one's mortality through loss through the recognition of just aging Uh, sometimes it can just be through a, a, rep, a series of repetitions of disappointments. Uh, but in any case, what happens is we begin to question all of the uh, roles that we've taken on in the world in an effort to try to get love and approval. And we realize that it's inauthentic. It's not based on uh, not only stuff that's deep and spontaneous and natural, to us, but also just trying to get um, trying to get security, to get uh, happiness, to get peace of mind doesn't work. It can be developed, but it can't be taken or gotten. Um, it can be cultivated through actions, but it cannot be taken from careers, taken from sensual possessions, taken from approval. All those things do not mean anything when we're face-to-face, not only with uh, aging, sickness, and death, but separation, abandonment, rejection, loss, all the, the um, 
materialist uh, role playings that we do to get uh, some kind of approval from others, they tend to not work. Uh, so they, we have these moments where we're face to face with the largely, when it comes down to the big issues of life, the meaninglessness of so many jobs and, and so many uh, friendships and so many of the obligations and responsibilities that we recruit, so many of them are things we've taken on just because we've, we've been told they're the right thing or uh, we're just you know, going along with what we have been taught or habit or uh, who knows. But when the shit hits the fan in life, we begin to see just how many of the structures we've erected in our lives don't come to our aid and our support when we feel abandoned, when we feel confused, lost, frustrated, and, you know, completely overwhelmed. <laughs> the Buddha, when he was... He, he got to the age of 28 before he had, I guess, his midlife crisis. He was all set and groomed to be the next sort of king, he was the son of a king, he was rich, he was, you know, he bought into the whole thing, the, 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 uh, the whole plan. He went along with it, he was going to be sort of a soldier king, and then one day he saw clearly old age sickness and death, and he realized that everything he had been groomed for, everything that he was buying into, all the beliefs, the ideals, the value systems, which was accumulating money and power and, and sensual pleasures, none of them, he realized, in a flash of inspiration, were going to do him any good when it came to facing death or old age or illness or separation from things that he loved. He realized, holy shit, he said to himself. <laughs> Holy shit, I'm screwed if I keep on this, this uh, path. So, he promptly, he went home and it said that he went to a party that was filled with young, beautiful people and all he saw was skeletons, corpses, because he could see immediately how everything was going to play out and how everything that he was clinging to for, for pleasure was not going to last, was not going to leave him with anything substantial. So uh, he basically quit the family business, and uh, he went off to find a spiritual path that would bring peace and ease to s no matter what experiences happened in life. So the role of the uh, existential crisis is actually not something to view in, from a spiritual perspective as, as a bad thing. The radical disillusion experience, the radical feeling of alienation from why the fuck do people give a shit about this shit is not, does not mean that we need medication. Doctor! You know, I have a job, alphabetizing, A, B, D, C, D, A, B, 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 and I'm, I'm just finding myself bored. 
Can you give me some Adderall, you know, make it work? Because I don't know why. I'm having thoughts of despair and alienation. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, that's actually not a, a realization to be medicated away. It's actually... Uh, Sometimes you look around you, and especially in the city, and we, I just see people rushing around frantically uh, <laughs> to do what? How, I mean, how many of us are rushing to do things that are really based on higher, authentic <laughs> ideals that will be of any value for us for any length of time? Uh, most of the time it's like, shit, I'm late. Why did I take this route? Why didn't I take the F to the A to the C or whatever? So um, tonight's, the uh, tonight's talk is going to be about how do we, <laughs> what are the methods of sparing ourselves from needing to get to a midlife crisis before we see through the hollowness of so many life structures and actually can begin to prioritize our lives in a meaningful way. Boy, that was a mouthful. I can't believe I can talk that way. Uh, so, yeah, the idea is how can we not put off that... You don't want to wind up my age. <laughs> you don't want to wind up my age, you know, getting some trophy, you know, for, you know, you're a lawyer and you've been at law school, you've been, not law school, you've been a lawyer for 20 years and you've you're getting some kind of trophy, and it's all meaningless because you 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 followed that path simply because you were told that that's the best place to uh, find security in the world. And even though it has no deep inner inner, uh, uh, it doesn't ring. It doesn't mean anything to you. Uh, you stand there and with a life achievement and. Uh, it's understandable that people do that to a degree because uh, to go into the unknown, to take a risk, to, to uh, be willing to, to walk away from roles in the world, jobs, uh, relationships or uh, friendships even that are hollow, that don't mean anything. Or B, to stay in them, but to demand that we bring something meaningful into them. Both are very scary. Both are risking that rejection that we felt as children when we didn't get love for our authentic selves. It can be very frightening to risk any form of rejection or any form of failure because it can feel like annihilation. We can bring that whole childhood fear. And yet it's necessary if we want to have our lives have any real meaning. Meaning it does not accrue from, from acting like other people or following in the grain or the, the flow of others. Uh, you know, if, if we're imitative and we're lucky enough to live in an ethical society then we might live ethical lives, but 
there's so many examples in history of people that were simply going along with what everybody else did and and wind up participating in some of the cruelest genocides, most racist uh, periods in history. Sometimes just leading a life that is in any way ethical, in any way, you know, true to the heart requires taking risks. So, um, early Buddhists had, a, uh, I'll talk a little bit about early Buddhists and their method of uh, developing uh, a different insight into what matters. And then I'll talk about some much more uh, easier to enact <laughs> approaches because the early stuff was really difficult. Uh, what early Buddhists would do to save themselves having a uh, uh, waiting until midlife crisis before they saw through uh, the, the lack of, of security and, and, and true um, value in so many support structures in their life, they would um, they would uh, just get into the process of moment by moment by moment observing the unending stream of changing sensory experience without adding any labels or even perceptions. Just watch. So if you were looking, you just wouldn't turn the field into people and things and places. You just observe in terms of colors and shapes and just hear changing sounds, feel different body sensations. And eventually this process would create what's a very destabilizing experience of seeing that everything is just changing, that nothing is uh, ever constant. Um, if you look really closely at the people in your life, what we generally tend to do is we see somebody we know, and we go, hey, Phil, hey, you know, how's it going, Alex, how's it going, and then we don't really take them in anymore. The moment we give them a name and we, we know who they are, we tend to not look closely. But if you really look closely at us, you really take us in. Every moment, we're aging, we're changing, life is passing by. And if you begin to perceive the world with that kind of detail, it's a little bit like, um, as one monk I've uh, sat with says, it's like standing by the side of a road and when you're first at the side of a highway, you see the cars coming and going. But if you just turn yourself a little bit to, the, uh, to one side, all you see is the cars going, 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 going. And that's what life becomes when we begin to see radical impermanence. You just see moments going, going, everything fading away, nothing lasting, every physical sensation, every thought, every experience in life is just going like cars into the distance, going away, going away. And so this perception, understandably, would lead to a lot of despair. <laughs> and, uh, and so this, what's known as disenchantment or alienation experience would... Um, there's a word for it, yeah, banga nupasana, that state of like, holy shit, everything is impermanent, nothing's going to last, and then 
that they would even get to the place where they notice that the mind that's observing change, even the mind itself is changing. So nothing is stable anymore. And the point was they would get themselves into this place of such exhaustion of noting change that eventually they, the mind in essence would implode the desire to grab onto anything. And there would just be this moment of letting go. Nothing is stable. Nothing can be grabbed onto. Nothing in the world is secure. And at that moment, if it all works out, you don't lose your fucking mind. Uh, you would, uh, in this view, what's known as the Vasudhi Maga, what would happen is um, uh, there would be this um, this letting go in the forms of just tolerating it all, uh, not grabbing onto anything, not having preferences, just observing, but observing from the place of knowing that it's all impermanent, that it's not going to bring lasting happiness if we, we cling onto it. And so by that path, which is kind of punitive, um, they would get to a place where they viewed everything as equal and uh, worth tolerance because nothing... Uh, in essence, was going to externally, nothing was going to bring about happiness. Only the internal process of letting go and understanding. And so, in this sense, early Buddhism externally was very nihilistic. There's nothing out there that's going to, other than being kind and feeling kindness coming out, feeling generosity, but trying to get any happiness from anything or anyone was going to lead to uh, disappointment. So people learned to give, to be charitable, to be generous, because they saw that just the feeling that the mind had during giving, during kindness, during tolerance, felt better than the mind that was trying to grab on to impermanent things for happiness. Now, fortunately, the good news is that none of you have to do the Vasudhi Maga. I am here to give you uh, some of the more recent tools in Buddhist practice that allow you to uh, view your life and ask yourself important questions in terms of how um, do we need to reprioritize uh, are we letting the roles that we've adapted in the world to define us rather than us define how we perform in those roles? Very often in life, we'll do just about anything for a secure lifestyle, and we'll let our thoughts and behaviors be shaped by our jobs rather than having a set of very strong personal, moral, ethical standards that we bring in. And when we have those standards, those higher ethics, we then will feel good about ourselves. We'll feel a sense of esteem. And uh, we can bring that. So none of, this, none of this reviewing of life means you have to quit your job and become a monk. You can do that. I think it would be very cool if one of you did that. Not for me. But... <laughs> I think that's very cool. So, you know, that's great. But I think most of us will just maybe use one of these reflections just now and then to ask ourselves, are we uh, heading in the right direction? So the first um, Buddhist tool that uh, I like very much is imagine 
if you will, that you've just found out that you've been given three months to live. You have 90 days left on this planet. What would be important for you? What would be the things that you would want to uh, go to your grave knowing that you had done? What would be the things that you do today that you would immediately uh, throw away if you only had 90 days left? (laughs) Now that you've quit your jobs... uh, (laughs) When we realize these things that will be important, we realize in 90 days, well, I would, like to, I would like to repair at least this relationship with uh, somebody in my family or with an old friend. I don't want to let myself die without this amends being made. I don't want to go into the grave without having uh, told this person to fuck off. No, we don't want to say that, but, you know, I mean, you, explore. And uh, this is a really good, a good way to review if we are prioritizing in our life things that we would, that really won't be meaningful us, to us when we're facing that. And that's a really important thicket. I've done work in hospice training, hospice, and I've never met anybody uh, who checks into hospice wishing that, you know, they had gotten a promotion or gotten... Uh, or or did projects on time or got caught up in so many of the little tit-for-tat disputes and work that we get ourselves worked up over or just our lives. Fights with roommates will no longer be important to you. (laughs) So uh, I think that's a good tool and it's a very popular tool in Buddha's practice. We might simply want to ask ourselves if I had 90 days left how would I behave differently? That's a really good question. How would I behave differently if I only had a limited amount of time? Guess what? You do only have a limited amount of time. More than 90 days, hopefully, but we're all on this you know, uh, planet with a few day passes, and that's about it. And, and living as if we've got an... Uh, an extended stay is a big mistake. Um, A second question is, what actions did I do five years ago that I'm proud of today? So, if you think back five years ago where you were in your life, or even more than that, what things really can you remember that you feel good about? And then learn from that. Because you want your life, when the time comes, when you hit a crisis, when you're in a state of fear, when any mortality issue arises, you want your life to provide you with all the... uh, You want your life to be filled up with things that you'll be proud of. I wrote a piece recently, a short article, on the Sri Lankan process of they would give kids in school... Uh, books to write down every day one good deed that they would do. And if the kids kept up with this process of writing a good deed in their book every day, when they, as they aged and went through life and then finally reached old age, what would happen is they reached uh, 
their final days, their families would gather and read back to them their lives. But their lives would be read back in terms of the actions that they did to help others. Imagine what, how much that would relieve your fear of death if somebody sat with you and read all the generous things that you had done in your life. Nice quiet pause there. <laughs> um, here's a fun one. This is one I do naturally in the shower practically every day, which is... Um, <laughs> if only it were that easy. <laughs> <laughs> so taking our minds up out of the gutter and bringing them up into the stars um, what would our speech to the world be if you had to impart the wisdom that you've learned from your life on this planet what would your wisdom that you would like to impart be very few of us, if we're really serious, you know, when asked, what would you like to, you know, you know, tell people about the, the surest way to find happiness and meaning in this world, very few of us will say, well, find a stable job and just go to it every day for 30 years and don't ask too many questions. Don't, don't review it too hard and find somebody who's stable and secure that will love you. It doesn't have to really be that authentic. But if so long as you have those basic needs met, then that's really all that matters. So, so um, there's that one role, one existential uh, psychological practice that I like is role stripping. Um, Basically, the idea was uh, people would write on index cards the five, four or five most uh, important roles that they play in the world. And um, so, you know, I might be, I suppose, uh, I like playing banjo, I uh, love uh, watching films, I love teaching the Dharma and doing counseling and uh, all these roles, right? Family roles. So we write them out and then we order them in terms of what's most important to us. And then we throw out the least important. So I wouldn't be able to play the banjo again. All right, big fucking deal. Nobody's going to die. I'll be okay. But then, oh, okay, I can never watch any good films again. Suppose I go blind, whatever. What, what, how would I fill that in? Ooh, well, that's a little bit more. Now I have to do a little bit more thought. Then I throw away, you know, suppose Buddhism became illegal or, you know, 11 Buddhists flew a plane into a tower and nobody wanted to come here anymore so I don't get to teach, right? You know, <laughs> then I'm like, oh, shit. Where am I going to find peace and happiness now? So I go through all the roles that I play and I throw them out until I have nothing left in the world that's giving me support or joy. And I have to ask myself, where can I get those things that are unconditional? 
where can I find unconditional peace without all these? And then, one by one, I return to those cards and I just demand that I bring those higher values into each role. So, uh, for me, what are the higher values? They are empathy, honesty, caring for others, being tolerant with others as much as possible so that we'll be tolerant with ourselves. Um, fairness, not, uh, not prejudging or uh, barring other people from our attention due to appearance or uh, any of the sort of preferences that our culture in terms of appearance or, or any other ways that we use to exclude people. Uh, being creative. All these to me are the most authentic, the things that we'll always have that can never be stripped away from us. And the more I examine my life from a place of understanding the impermanence of so many of the roles that I play, I can still bring uh, something deeply authentic to them, I believe. Uh, in my own life, I've had to walk away from uh, a career that meant nothing to me. And when I was first teaching, you know, there was 20, 15 people coming. It was not, you know, it was pretty much poverty all the time. But that's, that's fine. I can tell you that the, the value that comes from taking... Um, a risk to stand up for the things that we deeply believe in and we know to be true, uh, in the end, are the things that will give our life meaning. So I hope there was something worthwhile in there somewhere. I uh, thank you for listening. And now I'm going to turn this off.